Well, good morning. It's great to be here today, sing God's praises, and uh, then we'll read his word together. Now we're going to turn in Mark's Gospel. If you have a Bible, please turn to chapter 2, and we'll read from uh, verse 18 all the way down to verse 6 of chapter 3. So Mark chapter 2 verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Amen. Trust indeed that God will bless to each and every one of us the reading of his words. The entrance of his word brings light indeed. It's an era that is dawning, as I've put on the slide there, the dawning of a new era. You know, change is something that all of us experience in life. All of us experience some change in, in the workplace or just in society in general, I guess. 
Some change uh, when implemented, of course, doesn't seem to improve matters, but just brings burdens, it would seem, upon us. That obstruct, pro obstruct progress. Some changes uh, can bring much-needed improvements and renewal. Well, when the Lord Jesus Christ commences his public ministry, it soon becomes clear, I'll submit to you, that he is bringing a change. He is bringing a change. For many people back then, the practice of religion had become far removed from what it was meant to be. It was becoming dominated with external appearance, burdensome rituals and compassionless rigidity. Reality had repl been replaced with ritual. And the Lord Jesus came not to affirm the majority practices of many and affirm the practices and the teaching of the religious leaders, rather to confront them and show the people the right way, to show them God's way. This was truly going to be when the Lord Jesus commenced his public ministry, the dawning of a new era. It was indeed something that the Old Testament scriptures did point towards, but sadly the word of God had become diluted or distorted over the years. And many people were not looking for this promise. Many people, as we can see, are happy in the rituals of the day. And so we're going to look at these three separate incidents uh, today, just on little three little uh, bits there, uh, like that. As you can see the outline on the board for you, how it's going to go for us today. How the Lord Jesus taught and what the changes he brought to the people. And I ask us today, then, what changes does he bring for us? What changes does he bring for us? The first incident, then, is this one, what we see in verses 13 to uh, 17. In fact, we, uh, we see that. Not there, of course. I mean, I'm reading, my, I've got my contact lens, and you'd think I'd work better in that, wouldn't you, really? Uh, it's in verse 18 to 22, of course, a question about fasting. Very interesting. You know, there's two groups uh, who are fasting. It's the disciples of John the Baptist, and it's the disciples of the Pharisee, which seems two very strange groups to come and be brought together or questions asked you might remember how John addressed the Pharisees John the Baptist addressed them on one occasion in Matthew's gospel they were coming to him and uh, at this time of baptism and John says to them uh, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come well, that was some welcome, wasn't it? Uh, not perhaps a welcome that all of us would like at our family service. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But the commonality, as we've seen between them, was that both of them were fasting, going without physical food. Going without physical food, a religious practice of the day. And we certainly know from, the, from what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees, that this was something they did with not good motives. 
They did it um, publicly. That they did it, and they made themselves look gloomy in, in before people. They disfigured their faces so that their fasting would be seen by others. That was why they did it. That's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter six. So the Pharisees fasted. Um, that was their motive, so that others would see how spiritual they were. How religious they were in this fasting practice. It's interesting, as far as I can read, the Old Testament only records for us one day when people had to fast, the Day of Atonement. But, as we come into our New Testament, see the practice of fasting had become widespread Some of you might well remember um, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now it's just a parable of course, but the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 18 there, the Pharisee boasted. What did he boast? I pay, I fast twice a week. I fast twice a week. 104 times a year. Well the law said once and he went for 104 become a practice of ritual for them to be seen to elevate themselves what was important external appearance how they appeared before others was extremely important to those people you know fasting should have been if you're going to do that for a sorrow to do it privately genuine sorrow and repentance and the lord jesus christ as we see is asked a question well the pharisees fast john the disciples fast as well why don't yours the Lord Jesus gives what we see as an explanation and then two word pictures and the two word pictures really expand his teaching and the Lord when he was often asked a question well he would answer the question but he'd take it on to what is the real thing behind the question what does he really want to teach and he brings us first of all to this idea of a wedding feast and I, I guess all of us are familiar with a wedding to some degree or another and this part he says well when you've got a wedding uh, you have wedding guests and you have a bridegroom it'd be inappropriate to have a time of fasting and sorrow, wouldn't it? And we can all relate to that, you know, if we're at a wedding. Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to look miserable. Uh, I guess, you know, it's a time of joy and of happiness. And he said, well, that's how it is with my time here. When, when these people described as wedding guests are with me, this should be a time of rejoicing, not of sorrow. Joy. My presence brings joy to people. So it wouldn't be appropriate for them. It's very interesting how the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself as the bridegroom. Because in the Old Testament, that's how God pictures himself. You could turn to the book of Hosea, you could turn to the book of Isaiah in 54. And God speaks about himself in an intimate relationship with his people. So the Lord Jesus Christ is drawing on that imagery that he indeed is the bridegroom. When we move to our New Testaments, of course, all those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are part of what is called the church, the bride of Christ. There's this intimate relationship that is enjoyed, can be experienced by all indeed. And so the Lord Jesus says his presence brings joy. But did you know this? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, And he says this, as we read verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And there is a hint 
of what is to come. That the bridegroom will be taken away forcibly. You see, it's something that's going to happen to the bridegroom. It's going to be happening to him. That the bridegroom is going to be taken away. A clear hint of what would be happening years later. As our Lord Jesus Christ's public ministry goes towards the cross. That here he would suffer a violent death. And that the cross he would there be placed there by wicked men. Who had wanted to destroy him. Of course it was always in the very plan of God that the Lord Jesus Christ would go to the cross. This was the very mission of the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. You know, Isaiah says, Isaiah 53 verse 8, in our English translation has this same phrase, to be taken away. Listen to what it says. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And so there is a clear prophecy hundreds of years before it happened that the servant of God who is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ will be taken away and where he was be taken away to he would there be stricken for the transgression the sin of his people and all has the cross in view that the cross was why he came and the cross was where he would go to take the punishment for sin, not of his own, he'd be stricken for the transgression of my people. So that's his teaching, but the Lord Jesus develops that, doesn't he? Because then we have these word pictures. We're gone from the wedding, and after that we go to um, this sort of tailoring experience, you see. It takes me a bit out of my expertise here, uh, of cloth being sewn, things being patched up. And we read there, there's a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Well, no one does that, the Lord Jesus Christ says. Because if he does, uh, if you've got a piece of unshrunk cloth, and it goes onto an old garment that is shrunk already, and that patches it up, then when you wash it, or whatever it does, the unshrunk cloth will shrink. Uh, obviously, the old garment will not, and the patch will tear away. I hope you understand that. <laughs> Okay, if I understand it on tailoring, I think everyone else can. Uh, so the Lord Jesus Christ says, well, that's what happens. And you think, what's that, what, what's that got to do with anything for us? Well, the idea is this. The Lord Jesus was saying that he's not come to patch up this religion of theirs. The sorrow of the old era. All this stuff was passing away and would give way to the joy of the new. He's not come to bring himself as an addition. He's came to transform and to renew. And that's illustrated in the second one. And from there we go from tailoring. Uh, we go to winemaking. Uh, again, an area I have no experience in. But I think we can understand this. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, what will happen? The new the the wine will burst the skins. Because the idea is the old wine skins have been stretched already with wine that had been in them. And if you put the new wine in, that's now gonna try and stretch it some more and it will stretch it beyond its capacity. And it'll burst. We understand that, I hope. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, Well, it's kinda like why I am here, the joy and vibrancy 
of the new life that I bring, that joy and vibrancy is not compatible with what is being practiced now. The ritual and the regulations of man-made traditions and religion. I have not come as an addition to those things. I have not come to be put alongside that. I have come to replace that. And what I bring is something entirely new. I bring something that speaks of joy. When he comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, we we read, was it last week, how he could say to a man, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they were right in that. But Jesus Christ comes and through his death and resurrection and the satisfaction that he brings before God, he is able, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for people to understand that their sins have been completely forgiven. The joy of having sins forgiven, completely dealt with. And that is the joy that every believer Every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ can know and should have that joy that Christ, the Lord Jesus, has completely and fully dealt with their sins. They have been adopted into the very family of God. The end of chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ brings before us there. At the end of chapter 3, you know, they says, well, there's your mother and brothers outside. And he says, well, do you know, here's my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's bringing people into the very family of God. And he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, I didn't come to be an addition. I didn't come to patch up things. I'm not going to add myself to the tradition and rituals of the day. But I have come. And salvation is through faith in me alone. It's not to be mixed with anything else. Now I doubt that many people here are following Judaism today. And many people I meet, I've hardly ever met someone who's really a Jew and following that. But people do follow other beliefs and like to add the Lord Jesus Christ to them. Here's someone I can add along. And Jesus says to us, no, no. You don't just add me to other things. I am the replacement of all those. I am far greater than all those. Salvation is through me alone. And I don't stand equal to these rituals and this religious um, religion of men. And so... There is joy in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings joy. But then we come, uh, the second incident is the Sabbath day. And you see the incident there, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is walking through grain fields with his disciples on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath, of course, as many of you know, was an extremely important day for the Jewish people. It is a day of rest from normal activity. A day given them by God to be special, set apart from him. A day that pictured the seventh day of creation. I suppose technically you should say six days of creation and the seventh day a day of rest. So excuse my little error there. But that was the picture. God created everything in six days. And on the seventh day he rested. 
That's the pattern for our week. And God gave to his people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, a day where they should be set apart, given to them for their welfare. For their welfare and for their blessing. A day which was not meant to be a burden, a day which was meant to be a blessing for them. A day which wasn't meant to be filled with ritual, but a day which was meant to be a refreshment for them. And on this day, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, as we see right at the end of our, of our little section here. The Sabbath, that Saturday, as we call it, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Then, of course, the Jewish reckoning, of course, the day starts at sunset and goes to the next sunset. So that's, that's the day, because in creation, we see every day of creation, there was evening and there was morning. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. So that was how it was reckoned in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people kept that day separate, especially for God. And God was told them if they didn't keep that, there'd be a curse for that very interesting he never told any other nations to keep the sabbath day and nowhere else nowhere in scripture whatsoever do we see that all the regulations all those laws god given are transferred to another day we don't see that so a sabbath was a day for the jewish people but it had become burdensome why had it become burdensome why had it not become a time of refreshment because it was for the man-made legalistic rules that were being added on top of what God said the day should be. And so over the centuries and centuries, more and more rules had been added. Not by God, but by men. And they had buried God's word with cumbersome detail. Later on in, in God's goodness, if we get to it, Mark chapter 7... The Lord Jesus Christ says this to the people, in vain do they worship me, verses 7 to 8, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Serious. Serious. To elevate a man-made regulation or law or tradition to be of the status what God has said to do shouldn't happen mustn't happen but that's what had happened the traditions and regulations of men have been so elevated they were equal or even above what God had said and what was happening on this day well the disciples were going to pluck heads of grain there was nothing wrong with that if you, if you read in, in God's law in book of Deuteronomy 23 to 25 you could walk through a field and you could with your own hands you know you could pick something up to eat you know uh, you might do that type of thing today I don't know if you'd go through a grain field and eat grain but anyway but you get the idea as long as you didn't take a sort of big knife and hack things down and put it in your bag and take it home that's stealing but you were allowed if you were hungry uh, as you went through a field to just take some from your hands and eat it the need was being met and so it wasn't against the law but the Lord Jesus Christ interestingly to me anyway and I think you'll find this interesting too elevates it because he refers to an incident in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21 
And what happened there is David, who was the king, who was the rejected king, he, uh, him and his men were hungry, and they went uh, to a man who was the high priest at the time and said, have you got any food? And the only food which was available was in what was called the tabernacle. And there was a table in the tabernacle which had bread on. Now, only priests could eat it. Only priests could eat it. And David was not a priest, and neither was any of his men. So it was against God's law to eat it. That's really clear. But what happened is David and his men were in need, hungry, and they ate it. And the Lord Jesus refers to that. And it's interesting, have you never read? It's interesting, the number of times the Lord Jesus Christ says that to the religious leaders. Have you never read? Nine times in the Gospel accounts, he confronts them with that. You should, you should know. You should know about this. You know, you're accusing them of breaking the law. What about David? What happened when he was in need and hungry? The Lord Jesus brings before them this very real incident where by the letter of the law they broke the law and they ate the bread that they should not have done and it shows that the Pharisees had a narrow interpretation of this law. The spirit of the law, the spirit of the law, placed human need over ceremonial regulations. God was concerned and is concerned with meeting people's needs. Not their wants, but their needs. There was a need here. They were hungry and in need. Okay, the ceremonial law says don't eat the bread. But the Lord Jesus here confirms that they did eat and they were fi- that was fine. That was fine for them to eat. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were not concerned with the people's needs. They were concerned with fastidiously holding, upholding the letter of the ceremonial law and avoiding the spirit of the law. So what do we see? In cases of necessity and for the welfare of others, the ceremonial law could be bypassed. And the Lord Jesus Christ makes that very clear. That it was fine for David and those who were in need to eat bread when they were hungry. And he makes two very clear points, doesn't he, at the end. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This was God's provision for the people's physical and spiritual welfare. And then he says, with a claim to deity of who he is, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. So if he's Lord, he gets to say. He has the authority. And so when he brings before us that what is the spirit of the law needs to be kept above the fastidious keeping of the letter of the law when it comes to human need, he's taught well, obviously. So what about us today? Who are you? Do you have a Sabbath to keep? Well, nowhere are the Christians commanded to keep Sabbath, that's for certain. And nowhere has it seen that all the restrictions were transferred to another day either. But there is a rest. There is a rest. Hebrews chapter 4. Let me just read it to you in verses 9 to 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did 
from his. There is a present rest. There is a present rest that every Christian can and should enjoy. It's a rest in Christ. It's a rest from labouring for a righteous standing before God. So many people do labour for that and work for that and try and do things and think then that will make them approved in God's sight. Or God will think on them a bit better than he does if they do something, whatever that might be. That labour is onerous and burdensome and can I say, pointless. Because of the rest that can be experienced and known for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their saviour. That he has completed the work. There's nothing can be added to that work. And trying to add to that work takes away from the work that he has done. Because it is a perfect work that Christ did at the cross. And if you are in Christ, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be any more righteous than you are already. Because God sees you in Christ. You can't do anything to improve your status, your position. You can't do anything to lessen your position. Because you're in Christ. You rest in that. You rest in that. And there, of course, is a future rest. A future, a heavenly rest. We put on gravestones, don't we? R.I.P. Rest in peace. And I'm not too sure many of us, or in large, think what that means. We're testifying to the very fact, if we've written that, we see that, we nod at that, that life hasn't ended with that person in the grave. But we trust that they are resting and they are experiencing that peace. And friends, it is true that the only people who do that are those who are Christians, who are in Christ. They're at peace, they know that peace, and they know that heavenly rest. So there is a rest for the people of God. But the third incident, the third incident again is a Sabbath day, but this time it's not the grain fields, it's a synagogue, isn't it? And it's baffling to some degree if you sort of just meditate upon this. Because what has happened is that they've gathered, the, the Pharisees, it would seem, the religious leaders of the day, they've gathered in the synagogue, the Lord Jesus Christ is in there, and there's man come in with a withered hand. And when we read it, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. There wasn't any dispute that he could. There was no dispute that he could heal. The opponents of the Lord Jesus Christ knew this full well. That here was a man who had the ability and the power and the desire to heal. The evidence was out there. We just have to read the earlier chapters in Mark's Gospel to see that. But the hardness of their hearts was so... That if Jesus was going to heal, they weren't going to rejoice and bow and worship and be thankful to God. No. The hardness of their hearts was this, that they would accuse him. 
of working on the Sabbath. And there the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, knows what's in their hearts with regard to this. And of course, he could have healed secretly, just do it outside. They wouldn't know. He could have done it tomorrow, the day after, or the day before. But no, he does confront them with this and ask the question. Once he said to the man, Come here, is it lawful? He says to his opponents, To do good or to harm, to save life or to kill. Well, it's almost rhetorical, isn't it? The answer is given, of course. How can it be unlawful to do good? How could it be unlawful to save life? You were allowed even to get your donkey out of a ditch if it fell in. There's a man with a withered hand. Inability to work as he wanted to. So he asked the question. And of course they had a lack of compassion. Again they are just filled with hatred for him. They are filled with our man-made traditions and they are blinded to that. The lack of compassion I'll put before you is staggering, isn't it? To see someone before you with a withered up hand and there is someone, the Lord of glory, who is able to heal and all you can think about is if he does it and we're going to accuse him. And of course, they've become so hard they've denied in their minds who Jesus is. The evidence was there. The evidence was before them. They knew what he could do. The proof was all there. But they were so resistant to bow before him, confess that he was Lord and trust in him for their salvation, that they had gone down a completely different path. And to you and I, maybe sitting here today, to perhaps all of us, that does seem staggering. But you know, people today, someone asked me this week, why do you trust the Bible? Why do you trust in Jesus? And I, I spoke why I did. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence is overwhelming. It's in a class of school children. They put their hand up and said, what, why that? And I said, well, this is, here's one thing. And here's something about the Bible you can think of as well. I said, would, would, would those men have died if that was a lie? No. The people who went out and said, no, they wouldn't. They understood it. Many people can understand that. It's one thing to understand intellectually. It's another thing to come and bow before Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And these people were so hardened that they wouldn't do it. What we see, Jesus is angry. There's an anger. Now it's not like the anger you and I have. Sometimes we get some news and we get angry, don't we? Well, maybe it's just me, okay? But um, I think we've all experienced anger, right? You know, good. Someone's nodding. Excellent. There's two of us. We've all done that because we've experienced and we get angry. Well, that's not the anger that he has. It's a settled. He's not receiving news here. But the Bible does speak about the anger of God. The anger of God against sin. And God is, the psalmist says, God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. There is a love, but there is also an equal anger as well. Perfect 
in all his ways is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was angry. He had anger. And he was grieved. See, the hardness of his heart, how they wouldn't confess him, how they wouldn't turn to him, that was a grief to him. You know, the hardness of heart of the people caused grief to the Lord Jesus. Just before he was being, on his last week, as he goes to Jerusalem, he has these words, so so poignant. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. That's how much you've been rebellious. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Rejection of Jesus grieves him causes him sorrow and so he was grieved here with these opponents well the man is restored Jesus says stretch out your hand so I don't know what work the Pharisees were accusing him of because all he said is stretch out your hand and he stretches out and instantly completely restored and that is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the work of God. He is in the restoration business. He takes that which is not functioning as it should be and restores it to useful service. Takes that which is not functioning as it should be and God restores to useful service. And that's what he's doing in this world today. That's what he's doing in the lives of individual people. Restoring them. So they can enjoy him, they can serve him, they can worship him. And he does that work. Well, the Pharisees go out, they want to destroy him. They're going to meet with the Herodians, another unlikely two together. Eventually he would be, as they thought, destroyed. Eventually he would go to the cross, but not in that time. In God's appointed time he would go. In God's time he would go to the cross. And in God's time, Jesus would give himself to die. He would give his life up as a ransom for many. And through his death, sin can be forgiven. And through the sending of the Holy Spirit into a person's life, there can be empowerment and able to live a new life, to experience the joy of all those things, all the blessings. Joy, freedom, restoration through Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice and the sending of his spirit. Truly a new era. Are you a part of that? Are you a part of that? <coughs> if you're not, then truly today is the day to not be like those Pharisees and hard of heart, but to turn to Christ, confess him as Lord, and trust him as your saviour and rest in that may God bless his word to us let's pray Father we just bow before you we thank you for your word today we thank you for the testimony that we can read concerning Jesus Christ and help us Lord each and every one of us to understand it better not just intellectually but then to apply it in our lives that we might we might come to know Christ to know him more in our lives and to worship you we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Take this hymn in closing.